the coolest thing about it is it's, it's like a large puzzle. There is a solution out there. You can find this, okay? You might have to dig very deep for that solution, but it is a puzzle. It's a massive puzzle, okay? And it does make you think differently. It makes you critically analyze every aspect of the problem, okay? It causes you to really use all the, 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 the knowledge and the, the skills that you learned in general chemistry one and two, okay? Um, Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about interesting people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and today we are recording in the basement of Whitehall with Dr. Forrest Robertson, a professor of chemistry at Westcon. Dr. Robertson graduated from Westcon, summa cum laude, in 2007, went to Dartmouth for his doctorate, did postdoctoral work at Yale, and also worked in industry before returning as a full-time professor to Westcon. We're going to be talking today about his class in organic chemistry. And Dr. Robertson, I told several people that we would be talking, doing this podcast on organic chemistry. Some of them walked away quickly. For some of them, their eyes went dead as I continued to talk, including our producers here. Uh, and, you know, they just don't get it. They're scared of organic chemistry, which I think I'm sure you see sometimes. But I told them you've invented a new approach to help students figure it out, this scary uh, idea of what organic chemistry is. And uh, you've written an adventure story, really, to help prep your students who are sophomores in, uh, at Westcon here. So can you talk about that, why you did it, and what it is a little bit? Uh, absolutely. Thank you for in the invitation today to come speak on this podcast. Uh, yes, yeah, so I teach the sophomore organic chemistry um, here at Westcon. And so with regard to the organic course, right, it is this course that all biology majors must take, chemistry majors must take, uh, medical students or pre-med students must take. And so uh, there is this stigma that is associated with the organic chemistry course. So they think it is impossible to uh, succeed in this course, that it's going to be possible to achieve that A, that, that desired A. And so with that said, um, I've had quite a bit of experience teaching uh, undergraduates at Dartmouth uh, College, where I did my graduate work, also doing uh, adjunct work here before I actually got the full-time position in 2014. And now that I'm teaching as a full-time professor here in the department, what I noticed with regard to the students and their preparedness for the laboratories was that there was no preparedness. We gave them the experimental handouts. We asked them to read this material. We gave them everything. And they would come in, and there would be this blank stare. You'd ask them a question. I like engaging my students while I'm in the laboratory with them. And there would be this lack of interaction and engagement. So what I thought is somehow would I be able to pique their interest before they came into the lab? And what I thought is maybe I could create, develop uh, this narrative of the young chemist, is what I call him. And what this narrative entails is this story of this one young man who starts out at the trailhead of his journey, and uh, he meets a few mentors. Uh, along the way uh, who help him develop his skills so that he's a successful organic chemist. And uh, so, yeah, so the narrative of the young chemist is uh, 
is developed in a way that there are nine installments because there are nine experiments that they do uh, in the organic uh, lab in semester one. And so the cool thing about it is that because it is a serial nature, there are these nine installments, the students actually anticipate, they look forward to the next installment. And so as I presented the material, they would then for sure read the, the narrative of the young chemist, which would then lead them into then reading then the actual experimental handout for that day and for that experiment of the week. And it actually worked. And so the students were coming in, they were much more prepared. There were obviously the, some, some students that were still not doing all of the work, but for the majority of the students, they were all reading uh, the, the handouts, they were prepared. They were even sharing the stories with their coworkers. Say if they were an EMT, they were sharing it with their co coworkers there. And so it was great to get the feedback from the students and saying, wow, I definitely uh, like these stories. They are sort of engaging me with the exper experimental handout, excuse me. Um, and they uh, were prepared for the lab for that day. And so thankfully it has worked. The end of the semester uh, evaluations that we give out, uh, one of the questions that we asked is, should this be continued? Was it helpful? And the students overwhelmingly uh, said that it should be. So that is sort of the, I guess, the overview of mm -hmm. the Young Chemist narrative. And there's kind of, uh, when I read it, it felt like a little bit of a Lord of the Rings kind of mm. uh, feel to it. Is that what you were having in mind or what other? Absolutely. So I definitely uh, love the sci-fi genre. And so I definitely have read all of those uh, wonderful uh, novels and those great classics. And so that definitely did play a role in sort of the creation of the Young, uh, the young Chemist narrative. And so, yeah, so and I think that to be able to uh, give a story where there is this development of this one individual, right, and he meets all these different characters and he does go through all these different challenges, I think that it's easy to sort of uh, make the connection to the organic chemistry course, right? There are going to be challenges, there are going to be difficulties that you at first don't think that you're going to be able to overcome and sort of achieve success. But just a little hard work going through it, having mentors that are always there to sort of uh, give you feedback and support when needed, right? Or to just say, go through it, uh, you can make it. And when you dig deep, you can definitely uh, have success. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that that story allows, uh, or at least shows that. Um, and I think that that helps the students as they're going through this course. What is it that students have difficulty with, with organic chemistry? Is it uh, the experimentation or is it the concepts or the math or what? Okay, so the organic chemistry course is definitely different than the other chemistry courses, for example. So it's not very, yes, there is math, but it's not very quantitative as, uh, as general chemistry is very quantitative, hmm. or um, especially Gen Chem 2, or analytical, or PCHEM. Um, those courses are highly quantitative. This is more of you're learning a, a significant number of principles and um, uh, fundamentals uh, that you must then learn well so that then when you move on to new material, you can actually apply those original fundamentals to these new topics and these new problems so you can actually um, sort of solve those solutions. So it's more of a, I always think of these, the way of, of explaining organic is, you have the algebra side of things, you have the geometry side of things, right? Um, this is more of a geometry um, uh, chemistry course because 
there are multiple ways to solve a geometry problem, right? You have all these axioms, postulates, theorems that you can utilize, right, to come up with a solution. Organic chemistry, you have mul you have a multiple multitude of ways of uh, of accessing a solution to a problem that you're given. But there is a better way. There is a best way of solving these, okay? Yes, the way they got them, it could be right if they took four or five steps to get there, but there may be a, a process where you only need two steps to get to the solution. And so, uh, yeah, so I think that it is more of a, I guess I, I sort of compare it to, is more of a geometry um, sort of uh, discipline. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, so that's that. So I have chapter one here of The Young Chemist, so I wanted to read it and then we can talk about what you are trying to lead students to, okay? Mm -hmm. So chapter one, as the aspiring young chemist embarks on his journey through organic chemistry to discover the principles and time-honored traditions of the discipline, he knows that recrystallization is the first technique that he must master. Recrystallization is the purification of a solid organic compound, and it is an extremely powerful and artistic technique. The young chemist will need to determine the optimal recrystallization solvent system and the appropriate amount of that solvent system in order to success successfully complete this technique. Throughout the ages, it has been taught that too little solvent will prevent the material from being purified, and too much solvent will prevent the precious organic solid from being recovered. Recrystallization will not only challenge the young chemist to develop chemical intuition, but it will be the first chemical tool in his synthetic toolbox. Mastery of recrystallization will enable the young chemist to tackle the myriad trials that await him on his arduous journey. So what do you want students who read this the first time to uh, come away with and start thinking about? So the initial thing that I would like my students to sort of come away with is that the things that they are learning from day one, right, are going to be used throughout their time, especially in the organic course, but it's definitely going to be used in the inorganic course that they, that they go through for sure and other chemistry courses that they um, go through. So it's not just a once and done where they learn it here, they do it once in the lab during recrystallization experiment, and then they put it away. They're going to be using it, like I said, for inorganic chemistry. When they get to their senior research project um, in their senior year, they're going to most likely have to recrystallize an inorganic solid, some organometallic complex, or whatnot. And so what I want them to come away with is, yes, they are building a toolbox. They have a toolbox. This is the first tool that's going to be placed in that toolbox. And so they need to um, learn it well because they're going to see it again. Mm -hmm. um, that's the initial thing that I want to come away with. But the, the other thing is, is trying to just capture their, um, their intention at this point, right? You try to make it, I'm not going to say it's flowery, but try to sort of... Um, give a, a context where they are get, uh, their interest is being piqued, they are definitely engaged in, in what is uh, being presented, and uh, maybe it's interesting that we're going to read on, we're going to go into the experimental, hand, hand, experimental handout, and we're going to actually read the rest of this protocol. Um, that is the other thing that I want them to come away with. Um, and the thing about it is, and I guess the third thing is, with regard to the chemical intuition, this is something that we definitely try to develop as a department, for sure, because um, you can 
there are some places where you can memorize material, okay, and it's suitable for that. With regard to chemistry specifically, you just can't memorize everything. You have a set of fundamentals that you definitely learn. You learn them well, okay, like multiplication tables. Okay, you learn those, maybe memorization, sure. You learn them, you learn them well, and then it allows you then to do higher level math, okay? Same thing here. You learn some fundamental principles, um, chemical principles, and then you are able to then do higher level chemistry later on. And so what I want them to learn, specifically from this laboratory, is this chemical, the sense of chemical intuition, where you can say, okay, so I have this structure, it looks nonpolar. We learned this from general chemistry. Okay, it's a nonpolar molecule. So that means that I should presumably use a nonpolar solvent when I'm going, I should initially try to attempt a nonpolar solvent when I'm attempting the first recrystallization. It would be, uh, they would be remiss if they saw a very polar molecule. They can tell where it's polar, they have a bunch of hydroxyl groups, amino groups, and so forth on that molecule. They would be remiss if they then tried to recrystallize that polar molecule using a nonpolar solvent. It would be a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm trying to get these students to think about is you need to use your chemical intuition. You've learned these things. You know this from general chemistry. You know that likes dissolve like, right? Nonpolar uh, solutes, nonpolar solvents. Try to match them. And so um, that is what we try um, in this course to sort of promote and sort of sort of pull out of them. And I'll tell you, they definitely get there. The students that definitely work hard at this, they definitely get there. And it is, it is a, a rewarding thing to watch. Even in the first chapter, it's, you uh, infuse it with the idea that there's some art in, in this, not just science. It's a, Absolutely. Like it's a very artistic. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because you get to, it's not a protocol where it says you're going to add one mil to 0.5 grams of material. No, it's, it's you have this crude material that you have uh, made in the lab, you synthesized in the lab. And now you have to determine how much solvent you're going to use, right? And so you use discretion. Okay, it's very uh, sort of independent in, in, in what you use, what you do in the lab, because what you do is probably not going to be anywhere near what your neighbor's doing, right? Maybe they use a bit more solvent or a little less solvent, or they choose a different solvent um, and so forth. So you, there's a lot of freedom mm -hmm. um, in this lab. And when you crystallize uh, something, you want, you're doing that so you can understand its um, um, composition better? Yes. So when you recrystallize, what you are doing is you're purifying a material. Okay. So when you perform a reaction, uh, you have reactants that were converted into products. For a, an ideal situation, all of those reactants have been converted to products. In most situations, there are still reactants that remain. There are other reagents that you use that remain. There are maybe impurities that were formed. And so you need to get rid of those those materials so that you can isolate your pure product, okay? And so for organic solids, uh, recrystallization is the ideal go-to purification method. Um, and it allows you to get highly, highly pure materials so that you can then, one, maybe get a crystal structure if, that, if you have the resources. You could also then get a melting point. And melting points, of course, are physical properties of all compounds, okay? And so you would then be able to take the experimental melting point of your product that you just purified and compare it to then literature melting points. And so if it matches, wonderful, you made the product of, of uh, uh, that you were, were intending to. Um, and if it's way off, then go back to the drawing board and figure out what went wrong.
Do you have any students who come into your class and say, listen, I just want to read the book. I don't want to take the journey. And uh, can I just start recrystallizing now? Um, I think that there's a, there are some students that are recalcitrant to the idea of, uh, yes, digging deeper, diving into this and going on this journey of the young chemist. But I will say is most of the students by the mid semester, right, point, they are all on board and they are, again, which is so cool. And this is what I, I, I sort of uh, noted on my website is what's so interesting about the narrative of the young chemist is these students end up relating to this young chemist, okay? And they finally, or they, I guess not finally, but they will say things in their reports and their write-ups. They'll say, well, this young chemist, okay, uh, learned that, and you fill in the blank, um, or this young chemist is, feels like he is now, or she is now a skilled young chemist, okay, that's where we get to, um, because of the results that they obtained from that experiment. They're doing really good work and so forth. Um, and if they didn't get ideal uh, product, then they have things to do, and that's what they will say in the report, but they, they strongly relate to this young chemist, um, specifically by about the midpoint of the semester, which is really an interesting observation. So you have real documentation that they're uh, learning through this process. Oh, absolutely. That's no, really interesting. And do you find, you have uh, a lot of, you work with your students, your best students on uh, research, mm-hmm. And you have a lot of female students mm-hmm. that you work with. Is this uh, something that works with female students as well as male students? Or is this something that you think um, might be a better approach for uh, female students than the tra- traditional kind of science or STEM uh, teaching? I think that it actually works well for both male and female uh, students. I don't think that there really is a um, either gender is going to sort of... Uh, be better off with this this approach to the organic chemistry course um and so and the reason why i say this is because i have had i'll say top students that are young women mm-hmm. right that are number one in the class right so they're doing just well they're doing just fine um with this material and so i don't think there really is a bias towards either one uh how about the uh there's a lot of discussion over the last several years about bias toward women uh, in the STEM teaching. Uh, Do you think this helps overcome that? Or are you finding that more young women are better prepared now as they get out of high school to come into uh, your classes? Or what's your observation on that? So my observation of of young women coming out of high school, I think um, that the ones that I've actually seen, they are they are toe-to-toe with the young men that are coming into this, into our department and so forth. Um, they do significantly well on all the material, that are on all the examinations that they take. Um, and what's a really interesting observation is I have a significant number of young women in my research lab, and they, are, again, are toe-to-toe with the men that are in my lab. They are giving feedback to the men, the men are giving feedback to the young women and so forth, and they're all sort of moving forward and doing really well. Um, uh, the other interesting thing is, is that we had uh, about six students that applied to uh, medical fields okay, uh, last year, and now they're going to be going to these medical programs um, or health-related programs in the fall. And 50% of them are women, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty high number. And, and so coming from our department, um, 
it, it, which is a smaller chemistry department, uh, it's a great statistic. It for sure is. Um, they're going into a program such as uh, pharmacy, uh, they're going to dentistry programs at Tufts University and so forth. So I think that with regard to um, female, male uh, biases, I don't think that, I think that we're pretty much, uh, that is not a, an issue in our department mm -hmm. by any means. Was it more of an issue when you were here or at Dartmouth or at, was it already uh, resolved at that time? Um, so with regard to um, maybe the issue of uh, male and female uh, students when I was here as a student, I'll say this, my uh, best friend, uh, Brittany Serkey, who's now Brittany Baish, uh, she's come back and actually adjuncted for us last fall, uh, and she actually received her PhD in toxicology from the University of Rochester. Uh, she and I were pretty much toe and toe. We were top of our classes, um, back and forth uh, with regard to how we performed in each of the classes. And so I don't, I honestly think that when, when we get into this department, we, when we got into the chemistry department here at Western, I don't think that there really was an issue. I think that really gender blind, mm -hmm. to be quite honest, mm -hmm. at least for me, that's my perspective. Maybe I'm completely naive. But that was my perspective. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you um, observed it. It's very interesting because there is still discussion about of that course. in the uh, industry. Of course. And back to the young chemist, do you, are you thinking about how to use this as a curriculum for other professors? Do you think there's interest in that? Are you planning to write a book or how are you going to expand that, if at all? So that is an interesting uh, topic. So I have spoken with uh, other faculty, my other colleagues in the department, and one of them in particular said, well, why don't you write one for this course? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that has been a topic of discussion, which is, is pretty interesting. Um, and the, uh, the first thing that I want to do is actually continue it for the second semester. So they do this first uh, sort of nine installments of these experiments um, in the first semester. And then for the second semester, they actually do higher level experimentation, and then they have this qualitative unknown. And so it would be an interesting thing, especially the way that the story ends, to actually pick it up um, there with the new young chemist, um, which is a, you have to read the story, uh, and uh, to see that young chemist journey through this, uh, this new brave world, I guess. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so yeah, so there is, uh, all of those things are on the table at this point. That's great. And you wrote it all yourself, right? You I sat did. down and... I did. I did. And so this was 2000, fall of 2014. I would spend my Saturdays and Sundays drafting up the experimental handouts and then sort of tailoring the uh, story according to the experiment that was going to be performed that following week. So yes, so I wrote this... Yes, all from this brain, which is a little feeble these days, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, so yeah, it was, uh, it was quite the, uh, the project. Don't you know we're not supposed to work on Saturdays and Sundays? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I know. <laughs> all good things. What intrigued you about organic chemistry? Why is that the direction you went? Yeah, so, uh, so my story here at Western, of course, began in 2003, and so I entered into the General Chemistry 1 and 2 series, and I was very interested, obviously, in chemistry. I loved it. Coming out of high school, I loved it. And then when I got to organic chemistry, it was the first time you had... 
you fall in love with the topic. You just do. And it was something that it was that got captured my attention, captured my passion and so forth. And the coolest thing about it is it's, it's like a large puzzle. There is a solution out there. You can find this. Okay. You might have to dig very deep for that solution, but it is a puzzle. It's a massive puzzle. Okay. And it does make you think differently. It makes you critically analyze every aspect of the problem. Okay. It causes you to really use all the, 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 the knowledge and the, the skills that you learned in general chemistry one and two. Okay. Um, because again, this is sort of a, uh, uh, sequential discipline, right? Things you learn in Gen Chem 1 and 2 are still going to stay with you, right? For organic and analytical and PCHEM, biochem and so forth. And so when I got into organic and I got into the lab, it was, I can make a molecule, right? I can confer and transform matter, okay? And you can observe it. You can actually measure this. You can uh, uh, take an NMR, which is a way of uh, looking at the different uh, nuclei, the atoms in that molecule. It's like an MRI for molecules. <laughs> and so uh, you can do that and you can, without a shadow of a doubt, know that that's a molecule that you have made, okay? And it's a, an interesting and quite a, uh, yeah, a wonderful uh, a discipline and, and for all of those reasons. And how do medical professionals use that when in their professions? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the reason why uh, pre-med students, right, must go through the organic course, from my perspective, right, um, and, and others agree, is, okay, so if you think about what actually happens in organic chemistry, you learn a massive amount of information, okay? And it starts from day one, okay, and we just pile on the information. They must learn it, and the information they learn day one is going to be used in week 15 of the first semester, and then week one, day one of the second semester, okay? And if you do not have a good foundation, right, the first semester, the first week, whatever, um, you are going to have a challenge, okay, as you move through the course, okay? And so what happens is this, is you now build up this massive skill set of information, this massive skill set, this massive uh, synthetic toolbox, right, of, of, of skills that you've learned in the lab. And we will then give, as the instructors, we'll give a problem on an exam or a laboratory practical. And they're going to have to take that, that massive body of information sort of decide what information is relevant, right, to come up with a solution, okay, and then come up with a solution, how are you going to move forward, okay? If you think about what a medical doctor needs to do, for example, they have a massive body of, of knowledge, okay, and information that they've learned. They get a patient that comes in, a couple of symptoms. Think about those are the problems. That is a problem, okay? They then need to pull from their body of information, knowledge that they have, and come up with a diagnosis, a prognosis, the best way that they can and they see fit. Um, and so what we do in the organic course, right, is really give the students a critical, a way of critically thinking and uh, analyzing data and, and remembering data and, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and sort of being able to sort of uh, decide what is irrelevant information, what is relevant information, and sort of wading through all of that. Um, but for the benefit of the patient, because obviously this is on a much uh, <laughs> uh, bigger, uh, I guess, scale when you get to a patient, a live person sitting in front of you. Okay, so we try to do it on a small scale in the organic course, right, where you're 
uh, I guess the consequences aren't that great. Maybe you don't get that A, okay? But uh, we build these skills. We allow you to sort of develop them in the organic course so that when you are in front of a patient, you're able to pull from your uh, massive body information and sort of uh, give the best diagnosis possible. And organic chemistry is used in industry too, right? What would an organic chemistry chemist do in industry? So in industry, the organic chemists, so let's just take a step back. So organic chemistry is the chemistry of carbon, okay? And so uh, pretty much everything contains carbon. There are other things in organic rocks, minerals, and so forth. Those might not contain carbon. But if you think about pharmaceuticals, so... um, uh, pharmaceutical drugs and so forth. Those are all carbon-based. So those are organic compounds, okay? And so um, somebody that studies organic chemistry that uh, just wants to do bench work, they could leave with a bachelor's degree and they could go to places like Pfizer, uh, Banjo Ingelheim right here in Danbury. Um, and uh, they could end up uh, synthesizing and working on the development of pharmaceutical agents, okay, for human health. Uh, you could also go into polymer work, so developing new materials, so uh, pavements or pavements that actually have interesting properties, whether they sort of crack or they don't crack, whatnot, and so forth. Things that are more brittle, less brittle, um, and, and, and things of that nature. Um, uh, yeah, and so that's those are just a couple examples of what organic chemists can do in industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so if you think, so also what um, a uh, a graduate that is interested in organic chemistry, they can also go on to graduate school and so forth, where they can sort of hone in on the actual area of organic chemistry that they want to uh, work in. And so I was a synthetic methodologist, so um, I wanted to develop methods to uh, transform matter. So whether it's making carbon sulfur bonds in my case, or it is uh, inserting carbon into a carbon hydrogen bond. Or whatnot, and uh, there's those things, right? You could also be uh, a total synthetic chemist, okay, where they take the methods that I develop, or chemists like myself have developed, and they implement that their those methods into their total synthetic methodology, which is developing, synthesizing a molecule, so a molecule that has potential biological activities and so forth. So there's those two sort of groupings, um, and that's general speaking. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so so those are the two areas that you could potentially sort of find yourself um, when you go to graduate school for organic chemistry. And you're still doing some of that research here uh, in addition to your teaching uh, here at Westcon, right? I am, I am. Um, and so I've been uh, lucky enough to have students that have uh, taken quite the risk on a new faculty member. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they've done really well. They've done really well. We're moving right along. And so I have had three, four, five students every semester working with me in the lab, research lab. And so it's a really cool, um, just taking a step back from the research, it's a really cool experience because this is when you get to work one-on-one with the students. Yes, I get to work with them closely in the organic, sophomore organic lab, that's fine, uh, during the organic course. But when they're in my research lab, I get to stand side by side in the hood with them, okay, and really teach them all of the higher level techniques, okay, that they can use to sort of accomplish the transformation of interest. And um, so that I think is uh, just a cool thing because you get to see them really just perfect those techniques and really mature as the organic chemists that I want to see them uh, mature as. 
And uh, so with regard to the, or the, the research, so I'm interested in making carbon sulfur bonds, okay? And so it's pretty much, making carbon sulfur bonds is the uh, forgotten child, for example. Um, because if you think about carbon-carbon, carbon-oxygen, carbon-nitrogen, those bond-forming reactions, they are all throughout the literature. Making carbon sulfur bonds efficiently, that's the key word, um, is really sort of a forgotten and sort of, I guess, uh, not a uh, investigated area of work. And so um, in graduate school, I definitely worked on making new and efficient methods to access carbon sulfur bonds. And so that's what I'm continuing now here at Western. And so um, the coolest thing about it is sulfur, okay, back in 2014 um, and so forth, if you uh, looked at the top uh, pharmaceutical drugs by sales, seven out of 10, okay, contain sulfur, okay? And as biologics have sort of moved into the market, um, they've kicked out some of these small molecules, but you look at it, five out of the 10 now, okay, contain sulfur. So you can definitely say that sulfur has some interesting biological activities and properties, okay? Um, and so it's definitely of interest to actually make and develop new methods to form carbon sulfur bonds efficiently. Because if you think about it, if we're just going to get down to the bottom of things, right, if you can make a carbon sulfur bond more efficiently, right, you would then bring down the cost of making that molecule, which then hopefully, right, would then uh, bring down the cost of that uh, therapeutic agent to the, the, the uh, patient and so forth. And is the sulfur an efficient way to deliver the drug? Is that what? Uh... So, okay, so there are definitely mechanisms, of, different mechanisms of action with why sulfur is placed in some of these molecules. So sulfur is in penicillin, it's in uh, Prilosec, it's in uh, a variety of uh, therapeutic agents. And so the thing that they found, um, and actually, so sulfur, the very interesting place sulfur is found is in garlic. So the volatile um, uh, uh, the pungent odor, I guess, that you smell is due to the presence of these volatile organic sulfur-containing compounds, okay? And what they found, especially with those compounds, is that they have potent uh, antioxidative properties. So instead of some of your cellular uh, materials and molecules that are in your cells, instead of them being oxidized, okay, um, due to uh, reactive oxygen species and so forth, radicals and whatnot, sulfur, which is present in these organic sulfur uh, molecules, that would rather be oxidized, okay? So the sulfur has an oxidative protective um, uh, uh, sort of uh, role it, that it plays, okay, um, when you ingest this. So that's why everyone says take garlic, right? It's, it's good for human health, okay? Well, it's not, a, not all garlic, it's the actual organic sulfur uh, materials and, and compounds that are in garlic, okay, that definitely have the um, chemoprotective properties. So after you uh, write your curriculum and publish that, you're going to invent some uh, medicines to make you rich too, right? Mm, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, the goal is, right, to, to access these um, new sulfur-containing heterocycles. So these molecules that contain sulfur that have not been made before, right, that there is indication that they are um, biologically active and um, that they potentially contain, uh, possess antiviral, anti-carcinogenic, anti-tumorigenic properties, okay? Just based on things that are in the literature. Um, and then uh, accessing those molecules. And the coolest thing about it is that there are uh, agencies out there that allow you to ship those molecules that you make in the lab to their uh, uh, 
places of business um, and where they will then do all the biological activity testing for free. Okay, obviously, if you get a, a blockbuster, you get a, a, a hit, right, then there's obviously going to be some sort of contractual arrangements. Okay, but, but the nice thing about it is that they will do the testing for free. And so the whole end game of this is not just to make a bunch of molecules that contain sulfur. It is actually to find um, a molecule that potentially has uh, therapeutic properties. So in, in the old days, uh, scientists would go out around the world and find plants and animals and things that had and, and try to find chemicals within them that would be good medicines, mm -hmm. right? And now you're making, you're reversing it. You're making the chemicals from scratch mm -hmm. without going through the plants and the animals. Right, absolutely. So, right, so there's the natural product side of things where that's where the natural product chemists, they would go, they would go down to the bottom of the ocean floor and they would uh, get a sea squirt, mm -hmm. right? Um, and they would... Uh, sacrifice the sea squirt, um, isolate all the molecules from the sea squirt, okay, and then purify it, um, and then test those molecules against a variety of cancer cell lines and whatnot. Um, and if you got a hit, then you would then uh, determine the structure of that molecule uh, using analytical techniques, okay. Um, and then in the lab, because we don't want to go and harvest kilos and kilos of sea squirts, right, and wipe out a whole uh, species. Um, then we could then make that molecule in the laboratory, okay, on large scales. Um, uh, that's the natural product side of things. There's also the synthetic side of things, right? Okay, we're doing the same thing, we're making molecules. But the synthetic side of things is just coming up with new structures that may not be in nature. They may be, but we just haven't found them yet. Um, and then seeing if those molecules do have biological activities, therapeutic properties. So it must be very cool for the students, too, to be working on this kind of thing. Mm, definitely, because they get the big picture, right? And so I think that in, if you just say, well, we're going to make these molecules, there's no real purpose for what we're doing here, right? There is no application. I think that that really does sort of put a, a wet blanket on the research, right? But if the goal is, right, that this is where we need to get to, we, if we can just get one of these molecules, right, send it off for testing, see what the properties are, if it has even a somewhat mediocre activity, right, then we can do a little bit of medicinal chemistry where we decorate the molecule with different uh, groups, okay, to hopefully then uh, improve the potency of that molecule, okay, with regard to whatever sort of uh, uh, process that we're looking at. So not every professor uh, enjoys involving students in the research and making that part of the teaching. Hmm. So what's that for, how did you get there? So, okay, so when I was a student here at Western, right, um, I had a, the entire department was just one group of mentors, mm -hmm. okay, and the mentorship that I received from all of them, right, as I went through, uh, really did shape me into who I am today. Um, without those faculty members saying, well, maybe come into my lab, right? And we can do this little project. And, and so just get to this molecule, we'll analyze it, we'll characterize it, we'll get to this, okay? And really just, in essence, holding me by the hand in, in the beginning, right, okay? And saying, this is what we're gonna do, we're gonna go through this, right? Putting an arm around me when times got tough, okay? Um, and just showing me the sort of the beauty of research, okay? Um, I would not be who I am today. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of all those experiences, I know the worth, I know the value of mentorship and actually, yes, okay, putting my arm around a student uh, uh, and saying, okay, so this is how you do it, this is how we're going to work in the laboratory and so forth. And then seeing the 
the upward sort of progression in their uh, uh, ability to work independently in the lab, right? Because that's what we want, right? I think we all sort of say that. We want our students to be independent thinkers, critical thinkers, and so forth. And so um, from my perspective, when I went through Western, right, and had all these research experiences, that's what it allowed me to do is to be an independent thinker, right? Okay, so I'm coming up to this problem that for whatever reason has arisen, right? Without these research experiments, maybe I would have said, well, this is going to defeat me, okay? But after this and going through the program and so forth, there really is not a problem that I can't at least attempt, mm -hmm. right, to sort of uh, solve and so forth, and thankfully, definitely overcome many of them. So, uh, yeah, so I just know the value of it, right, to be an independent thinker, to sort of work in the lab, and sort of the rewards of working in the lab, right, is that you're able to, again, there might be this weird sort of... Uh, creation of matter, right, and stuff that I fall into, um, or organic chemists fall into, but you're able to make matter, you're able to transform matter into something that is of interest, potentially, okay? And so when the students are able to make, to perform a reaction, isolate that material, analyze it, and bingo, they've got it, right? Okay, there's something immediately rewarding about that and gratifying. And so, yeah, so that's, why I sort of work with students. I, I love the interaction with them. I love seeing them mature as, as chemists and, in, and individuals and so forth. So yeah, it's such a rewarding endeavor, I think, on both parts. So why didn't you stay at Dartmouth or Yale? Don't they care about that kind of thing there? So they do. They definitely do. Um, so I'll say this is, so when I was at Dartmouth, I mentored multiple students, okay? And Dartmouth is very good at the teaching side of things. And, and <laughs> If I'm going to be quite honest, the reason why I chose Dartmouth, okay, um, in the end, because I got accepted to multiple graduate programs um, after attending Western, um, large schools, small schools, Ivies, okay, um, and the reason why I chose Dartmouth was because their the department size and their open door policies into all of the faculty faculty members' offices was exactly what I found here at Western, okay? It was a smaller department, relatively speaking. Okay, it's quite large uh, compared to ours, but compared to the other R1s. And the faculty member are always available. They might say, okay, so I have maybe five minutes, okay? But I can definitely sort of uh, talk over this for a moment, okay, with you. They're all like that. That's what happens here at Western. We all have open door policies. Our students come in, we meet with them. Maybe we don't have more than five minutes, but at least we give them that moment where we can sort of acknowledge the issue that they have and so forth, um, and uh, yeah, and then send them on the way, and if they have to come back, that's no big problem, but that is why I chose Dartmouth, okay, in the long run. So I would say Dartmouth does actually do, does value and does appreciate that mentorship. Um, with regard to Yale, I can't really speak that much because I was sort of doing my own thing at Yale. I was doing postdoctoral research where I was working on this uh, bioconjugate um, material, and so I was just sort of extremely independent. But you had other choices. You could have gone other places besides uh, Westcon. Yes, for graduate school. No, I mean for coming back to teach. Oh, yes. Yes, so I, I could have. So there were uh, a couple of places that I had applied to. I, was, I interviewed and I got the uh, job offers. Um, however, to be able to come back to home, right, uh, here at Western, uh, when that opportunity arose and when I was given the opportunity to interview and so forth, and thankfully I was given, I was offered the position, um, 
to be able to give back to the type of student that comes to WestCon, okay, and to help them achieve what I know is possible, okay, to go on to amazing things, okay, um, I would never pass that up, ever, okay. And so, um, yeah, so it was not a difficult decision to make by any means. What do you mean, type of student that comes here, the uh, first generation or? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first generation, so I'll be honest about myself, I was homeschooled. And so I know there is a, a somewhat decent homeschooling population here at Western. Um, yeah, first generation, first female of a family coming here and so forth. Uh, students that have to work one, two, three jobs to actually pay for their tuition. I worked three jobs while I was going through uh, university. Um, while taking a full load and so forth. But again, it's possible, okay? If you have a vision and, uh, for your future and a goal for your future, it's possible. Is it easy? Absolutely not. I got uh, mono my junior year. I got very mm. sick. But, but anyhow, it is, uh, it's possible, okay? It is definitely possible. But those are the students that actually attend Western. They're working students, okay? They work very hard, okay? Some single mothers, okay, that they have to handle a lot of of different issues, okay, and so forth, and they still do well when they come here, okay, um, and so to be able to sort of have a part in that and to help these students sort of achieve success and to get to those places where I know that they can get to. You do the work here, you do well here at Western, you can go anywhere, okay, um, and by the way, I was able to uh, thankfully not have any student loans by the time I finished here at Western, okay, due to the, the, the wonderful tuition price here at Western, which some of my friends went to UConn and so forth, and they're still paying off some of their student loans, okay? So anyhow, so Western was an amazing choice for me. It was exactly what I, where I was supposed to be. Um, and yeah, so the ability to sort of give back to the students that come here, mm -hmm. um, it is such a, I think that I benefit um, more than the students do, so. You've got a great story. I really appreciate you coming in and talking about it and uh, talking about your innovations in the classroom, too, which are fascinating and, I think, uh, um, exciting for students. I also want to thank our producers, Scott Fulpe and Pete Puccio, who make this podcast available to the rest of the world. If you like what you've heard here, please subscribe at WCSU Media on iTunes or SoundCloud so you can stay up to date with all editions of WCSU 411. In addition to the interviews I do, we have several other professors talking about what is happening here at WestCon. I'm not a professor. Uh, and many of those stories are very good. They're not as interesting as what uh, Dr. Robertson just talked about, but they're pretty good. So thank you again, Dr. Robertson. Thank you, Paul.